Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, Is There an Assurance of Salvation? This November 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. Good evening, everybody. Welcome once again on this um, rainyish night to live in Verum. Tonight, it's a really great pleasure to to introduce again, once again, Robert Haddad. <coughs> Robert Haddad is our in-house speaker, and he's one of the best speakers in Australia. Those who know his his talks will attest to that. And it's our great privilege to have him at Lumen Verum. And also, it's a great privilege to have him tonight to give this talk. Is there an assurance of salvation? So I'll hand you over to you. 1 Corinthians 10. I certainly wish there was an assurance of salvation. If I was certain of it, I wouldn't be here tonight giving the talk against it. Uh, I warn you in advance, I intend to go slowly and at great length about this topic. Uh, if I was to give it an exhaustive treatment, I think we'd be here for a couple of days. So I don't intend to do that, because at least I want you to have a good night's sleep tonight, have something to eat over the weekend. But I am going to look at a number of verses in detail and dissect them, starting with the Gospels and moving right across a whole series of epistles from St Paul. The question is for tonight, is there an assurance of salvation? The real question today, okay, we say, is there an assurance of salvation? Well, from what point of view, what doctrine are we going to be analysing? I'm going to be focusing on two tonight. What's called OSAS, O-S-A-S, once saved, always saved, which is a predominantly evangelical uh, uh, position. And the other one is the P in TULIP. Uh, if you know what TULIP stands for as an acronym, the, the Reformed Presbyterians. Okay, I don't have a text, so we'll leave it at that. Sorry, I'm giving you the acronyms now. TULIP stands for the following. It's the five pillars of classical Calvinism, 16th century, hardcore John Calvin. Total depravity, unmerited election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now I'm going to just focus on perseverance of the saints. What is the difference between the two? Uh, I'll examine that in a few moments. Firstly, I want to give some of my own personal uh, encounters with these two doctrines, with people that I had relations with in the long distant past. We've got to go back to May 30th, 1979. Maybe not all of you were alive on that day. I was. That was the day I was invited by my Baptist friend Stephen from Punchbowl Baptist Church in Arthur Street here in Punchbowl to go down to the Billy Graham Crusade which was in town at the time. Billy Graham came to Australia on two occasions. 1959, that's when the famous Jensen brothers converted. Uh, now they're, one of them's the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, and the other one's Philip Jensen. And 1979. Now, my friend Stephen was a fabulous friend. I knew him for years before he had his serious Baptist conversion experience. Uh, he converted hardcore, his born-again experience, was about a year before, in some time in 1978, but I didn't know about it. He didn't relate it to me. 
he first approached me in an apostolic way somewhere in April of 1979. I was 15 and I was uh, at school here at Year 10 at Punchbowl Boys. And I used to swear all the time, F words all the time. Probably one in every three words was some expletive of some sort. And I didn't even realise it. It was just habitual. I mean, I was 15 years old in a public school. It was the norm. It was the culture. You didn't swear. You're a freak. So Steve said to me, look, Robert, why don't you stop swearing? He said it in a very nice way. And it was very gentle. And I thought, yeah, good idea, Steve. You know, no problem. You're right. Swearing's wrong. I know it's wrong. I'll try and stop. Lasted about a day or two and I forgot. Then he challenged me again a few weeks later. And yeah, okay, you're right, no problem. Soon after, he invited me to come to this big event that his local church was involved with. Come and hear this great preacher from America, Billy Graham. He's very famous. He's been everywhere. Come and hear him at Randwick Race Course. That's all right. Now, what was my spiritual or religious condition at the time? I was Catholic, but I was nominal. My parents... My dad is Maronite Catholic, or he was, he's passed away now. My mother was Eastern Orthodox, Antiochian Orthodox. She married a Catholic, and in 1958, when he married a Catholic, he became Catholic as well. Anyway, I was someone who believed in God, believed in Jesus, though my heart was in it, not much else was, besides, you know, basically nominal love for Christianity. Anyway, I agreed to go. And I saw a documentary about Billy Graham on TV before I went. It was just a coincidence, or if you believe in coincidence, I don't necessarily. But it was Billy Graham in Singapore, and he was preaching in some stadium, and he did the altar call, and people went down and made their commitment to Jesus. And at 15, and someone who believed in Jesus, even though on a week away, that was impressive. And I was very happy to see people go down and make a commitment to Jesus, because there's nothing wrong with that. That's great, that's what we're all about. Well, when Billy Graham was there on that night, May 30th, it was a wet night. There was probably about 20,000 people there. And I went down in the bus from Punchbowl Baptist. I went with Stephen. I went with Andrew. I went with Joseph. And I went with a guy who looked like Frank Hyde and spoke like Frank Hyde, the rugby league commentator. So we were there making jokes about this fellow. Uh, and I joined ourselves in the back of the bus. When the altar call came, I went down. And I made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And I remember it was a wet, the grass was long and it was wet and everyone was half wet because it was half rain everywhere, etc. Et when we walked home that night from Punchbowl Station back to our home, we all felt an exhilaration. I certainly did. Uh, but my dad had warned me, you're not changing religion. Because my dad had been scarred by his brother's experience and became a Jehovah's Witness. Okay? My dad's side of the family was pretty shattered. Uh, my, only my, my, my own dad was probably the only male in the family that had stayed stable and had any sense of authentic or some sort of practicing Catholic life. So I wasn't going to go anywhere to join any other church. But I hung around Stephen for the next seven years on a regular basis. I mentioned Andrew in that as well. Now, how does Osis and Chula come into this? Because the comments that Stephen would make on occasions is a very, very good practicing Baptist, an outstanding Baptist in every regard. Once saved, always saved. And as I said, this is the evangelical position. And by evangelical, I mostly mean Baptist. And, total, and Tulip there. Well, just right, I'll just put here 
perseverance of the saints. Now, we must understand that they are similar but not identical. And I hope I can show the difference in the course of this talk tonight. All right, I'll hang out, hang out with the Baptists. I'll go to the inter-school Christian fellowship meetings at lunchtime a couple of times a month. It was a mixture of Lutherans, Evangelical Lutherans, Evangelical Anglicans, Evangelical Baptists, etc. A couple of token Catholics, who, you know, and as I was one of them, and you know, I didn't feel entirely comfortable. But as I said, I like that fellowship. I like being with them. I like talking about Jesus. I like talking and looking at the Bible, etc., etc. Out of those who went with Stephen, I was probably the only one that persisted for some time uh, taking Christianity seriously. Andrew fell away very quickly. Now, in year 12, two years later, Andrew had another massive conversion experience, but this time with the Pentecostals. Because there was another guy in our form named Mark Edwards who was rapidly Pentecostal. And for three weeks, Andrew was just explosive in the classroom about this new, rediscovered second version of conversion experience, this time with the Pentecostals. This is two years before Hillsong even existed in this country. It was another Pentecostal local church. Now, as Steve and I were talking about this, this was quite remarkable. Because Andrew had seen in the dumps. And Stephen was saying to me, and I'm really impressed with Andrew. I mean, he puts me to shame because sometimes I feel tired and stale and it's tedious. You know, the struggle everyday life of trying to be a good Christian. And Stephen was. Stephen would have his Bible, thick good news version, in his case every day. And he'd pull it out at any instant to argue any point on any matter. Stephen never swore. Stephen railed against pornography and fornication. and you know, Anything that came up in the classroom, Stephen would speak the, the Christian slash Baptist position on behalf of Christianity. And I'm saying this deliberately, and I'm saying the truth about what Stephen was as an outstanding Baptist. And I joined the Punchbowl Baptist cricket team with Stephen. That's why I hung around them for many years after I left high school. Uh, it was the local New South Wales uh, church's cricket competition. There were no Catholic teams at the time. There were no papal bulls at the time. <laughs> when the Mormons joined, a few eyebrows were raised. There was many doubt that they're Christian. But they were admitted into the competition. And we had a great fun in the, in the, in the cricket team. But anyway... This explosive Pentecostal experience of Andrew only lasted about three weeks. Andrew completely collapsed again. And he collapsed into like a morbid depression. And he really got into the dumps. And he went back to his old ways, including, I mean, we had a, we had a student common room, and there would be Andrew going through porno magazines again as if nothing had happened to him. Stephen said something to me, which I didn't know at the time the significance of it. Stephen commented to me about Andrew. It doesn't matter what he said this, to quote him. It doesn't matter what's happened to Andrew. There's something in the Bible, it says somewhere in the Bible, that once you come to Jesus, that's it, you're going to heaven for sure. And I always thought to myself, wow, show me where that is. I'd like to know where that is. It seems strange to me. I said, hold on. That's not what I believe common sense tells me about Christianity, but I'll go with what the Bible says. You know, show me that where that's in the Bible. I never actually asked him that question. So he never got around to showing me. But he just said that somewhere it says in the Bible where, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved. Once saved, always saved. Once you come to Jesus, once you're born again, once he has you, he's not going to let you go. And it doesn't matter, well, at least to Stephen, and I, and I want to be honest here, I want to be fair. 
Am I representing the Baptist position sincerely and accurately? At least from what I know from what Stephen told me. Stephen wanted to be a Baptist minister. I don't know if he ever did. Last time I saw him was probably about 13, 14 years ago. He was married with a few kids. All right. That's that version. That's the OSIS version that Stephen related to me about Andrew. Let's look at Tula for the moment. What does perseverance of the saints mean from the Calvinist point of view that's distinct from the OSIS point of view? Calvin taught that once one comes to Christ, one is predestined to election. And when one is elected, he really just realises his eternal predestination. He becomes aware of his eternal predestination. That's the born-again experience for the classical Calvinists. He becomes aware of his eternal predestination to election. That includes a predestination to perseverance. Predestination to election is predestination to perseverance is predestination to salvation, eternity, heaven. If some part of the perseverance of the saints for Calvin is that you will not ever seriously sin again. You will not sin again seriously. So predestination to perseverance means Jesus holds you. You are not going to fall. You're going to persevere. So if you put Stephen in this model, it's good at first, but I'll tell you what happened to Stephen at one, one occasion. Stephen invited me, this was around the year 1985, he invited me to his wedding. He was engaged, he was engaged very nice girl, and I, didn't, I was just waiting for the formal invitation to come. At the end of 85 I got very sick and my life was derailed for a few months, so I forgot about Stephen and his wedding, it wasn't in the forefront of my mind. But eventually no invitation came, and I never went to Stephen's wedding. In 1989, Many years later, when I was working at Westpac Bank Corporation, another friend of mine named John, who was in the same cricket team, came to do a transaction, a real estate transaction at our office, and he told me about what happened. I was shocked and surprised. What happened? Unfortunately, Stephen, good Stephen, did a naughty thing with his girlfriend and got her pregnant before the wedding. So they had to have a rushed wedding and, you know, for the sake of, you know, preserving their reputation. You know, they just have to get married quickly and then move on with their life, which is what they did. Now, if you put Stephen, what happened to Stephen in the classical Calvinist paradigm here, perseverance of the saints means predestination to election, predestination to perseverance. Stephen should never have fallen like that. If Stephen was a true Christian, he would never have fallen in the first place. To have fallen or abandoned from the faith is a sign you were never a true Christian in the first place. And I have a big problem with that. And I'm not applying this model, I'm not applying, applying this critique to a Catholic. I'm applying it to Stephen, who I knew was a very sincere and devout Baptist, and full on and prayerful and studying, and every three days a week at his parish, and putting a heap of money on the plate every Sunday, etc. He was an outstanding Baptist from all I know. Calvin would say because he fornicated and got his girlfriend pregnant, that sin proved that he was not, he was not persevering in grace, he was not predestined to perseverance. He was not a true Christian in the first place, according to Calvin's model. Okay? In the OSIS model, if you apply Stephen's situation there, the fall from grace doesn't affect his salvation. He's been called. He's, he's in the hands of Christ. 
that sin doesn't jeopardise his salvation. Okay? He's once saved, always saved, and, and that's it, end of the story. If I hate Stephen's interpretation of Osus to be correct. Alright, that's just the introduction here. Now, my argument is, does the scripture teach perseverance of the saints? Does the New Testament, Gospels and Epistles, teach a consistent same doctrine throughout, that once you are called to grace, you also guarantee perseverance and you guarantee heaven no matter what. One of those two. You either guarantee heaven no matter what, or you guarantee to persevere no matter what. And no matter what happens to you, even if you fall, even if you apostatize, you're still saved and going to heaven. And if you're called to grace, you're going to stay in grace and you're assured of heaven. One of those two. Does scripture teach one of those two or both? Well, it can't teach both because they're, because they're contradictory, obviously. But another, just one last personal experience here before I move on to answer this question from scripture. Happened in 2003 to 2005. I had an ex-student of mine named Charlie. I taught many Charlies because I was at St. Charles College. So <laughs> most boys were Charles. This guy was a Charles, but he got, we call him Charlie, okay? So Charlie was in trouble in his life. He left school in, in 95 and he got into all sorts of trouble. You can just imagine what it was. Normally the boys that come and see me years afterwards, it's the same old story. It's the sex, drugs type of culture. And Charlie was in desperate trouble in this regard. He came to see me once and he was looking for help. And uh, I tried to help him. We went out for dinner at the restaurant here at um, Lone Star on Roberts Road for Big Steak. But he never fully opened up to tell me the depth of his problem. Uh, even though I perceived there was some problem. I gave him some advice about, look, you've got to come, you've fallen someone, all right, I understand. We'll gently come back, you know. It, it, was, it was like that. Anyway, I never saw him again until one day he asked me to come out for dinner to meet, to get some advice about uh, his upcoming wedding. I thought, oh, it's great to hear from you, Charlie. This is fantastic. I'll certainly help you, give you advice about your upcoming wedding because I'm an expert in marriage. Just ask my wife. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and, uh, Anyway, well, anyway, that wasn't really the case. Charlie was really disappointed me. That was a pretense to get me to come to a dinner to introduce me to his newfound mate. His name was also Robert, uh, who brought him into the Independent Baptist Church at Croydon, which is an Arabic-speaking Baptist church. Many Egyptians, many Lebanese, etc. Uh, very, very fiery. Oh, they make the Baptists a punch bowl that I associated with very mild. My time with the Punchbowl Baptists, you'd get anti-Catholic comments here and there, but they're still fun people to be with. And they weren't rabid or fopping at the mouth, you know, at Punchbowl Baptists. But the Independent Baptists of Croydon, whew, wow. Anyway, I spent the whole night debating in a restaurant with these two about Catholicism. And these two very young guys who suddenly knew everything about the Bible, were world experts in the Bible, even though they didn't know anything about Greek or no, no history, no, no Aramaic, no Hebrew, nothing. They're just, they're just, that's it. They had so, so much, so much certainty about themselves and everything they said about the scriptures. Anyway, after a series of debates, formal and informal, including a three hour formal debate at their church, three against three, that went on for hours, as I said, and I think we prevailed on the night, though I don't think they really noticed it. Um, he rang me again, Charlie. 
And he wanted to meet me and debate the issue of faith alone, Luther's original doctrine. And I said, look, Charlie, I'm just not going to come if you're going to try and convince me about faith alone. I mean, I've studied these things for 20 years. And I didn't say this, but in my mind, I mean, you can hardly read English and you want to try and tell me that you know the Bible, you're an expert on faith alone. Anyway, he kept saying, you're judging, you're judging, you're judging. All right. In the end, he finished with this statement. There's one thing I know for sure, Mr. Haddad. I'm going to heaven and you're not. So he finished up. I said, you've just made the biggest judgment of all. I want you to remember this. I'm going to put that statement in the context of a quote from St. Paul at the end of this talk. One thing I know for sure, Mr. Haddad, I'm going to heaven and you're not. Now, Charlie had a multiple series of certainties here. He had a certainty that if he died at that moment, he was going to be judged and found worthy to go to heaven. He had a certainty that even if he didn't die at that moment, no matter how long he lived, he was going to stay in grace, because he actually had a bit of the perseverance of the saints. He believed that he would never sin seriously again. So he had a bit of Calvinism there mixed in with his osis. And he had a certainty that I'm damned. He knew for sure that I'm damned. Why? Because I'm Catholic. Simple as that. Okay? So we'll look at this certainty at the end. I'll put it in the context of one of St. Paul's quotes. Anyway, this is not, strictly speaking, Catholic versus Baptist, Catholic versus Presbyterian debate. It's not that clear-cut. The following hold the same position as the Catholic Church. Eastern Orthodox, High Anglicans, Methodists, Pentecostals, Church of Christ, Lutherans, for a start. None of those churches, none of those denominations, churches slash denominations, adhere to osis or perseverance of the saints. Here's Luther and his commentary on 2 Peter 2.22. Through baptism, these people throughout unbelief had their unclean way of life washed away and entered into a pure life of faith and love. Now they fall away into unbelief and soil themselves again in filth. That's Luther's commentary on 2 Peter 2.22. Luther's commentary on Galatians 5.4. Quote, Indeed, even the righteous man can lose the righteousness he has and fall from grace by which he had been justified. So that's directly contrary to what uh, Calvin would posit subsequent to Luther. Since he had been removed from a good land to one that is barren. So certainly Luther's comments there would strike right against this doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Because perseverance of the saints says you'll persevere in grace your whole life. You'll never fall again. You're guaranteed. Maybe you could say it still fits into osis. Maybe Luther's saying you can fall from grace, but you don't fall from salvation. See, osis in a sense is more radical. You can fall from grace, but you don't fall from salvation. Calvin was the first to come up with this hypothesis of perseverance of the saints. Now, this poses a problem. I've spent a lot of time in the last 20 years, studying, writing, studying formally and informally about early church history and early church doctrines. I think most Christians would believe that if we don't find a doctrine in the apostolic age or or in the sub-apostolic age, that is the 100 years after the apostles, where people who were taught by the apostles wrote, like Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp, etc., if, there, if, you, if you don't find a, if you don't find a doctrine at least materially present in those writings one way or another, then it didn't come from Christ. 
the Catholic scholars are certain that we do not find these, either one of these two doctrines for the first 1500 years of Christianity. Now, some can debate that. Say, say it is true. Let's concede that the Catholic position here is true. We don't find Osses or Schuller in the first 1500 years of Christianity. That means for so long, for three quarters of Christian, Christianity's history, Christians had no assurance of salvation. Christians lived with uncertainty and doubt. How unfair. Why is that the case that this doctrine only became one of these two doctrines, or both of these doctrines, only became so evident in 1540 with Calvin and 1601 with John Spine? Why wasn't it so clear in writings beforehand? It seems unfair for the Christians who lived there. Or maybe there were no true Christians in that time. They were all either Catholics or Orthodox, and they're not true Christians. But one thing's for certain. If we understand the nature of the church, if the church is a divine institution, the church is not a human institution, it's not founded by man, it's founded by Christ. On this rock, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Scripture tells us, as a historical reality, Christ spoke. He intended to found a church, and he promised that it would never be destroyed. So where the head is, Christ, there must be his mystical body. That's the language of St. Paul. Christ is the head of the church, it's his body. Christ gives birth to his body. At the moment of his death on the cross, he gives birth to his body. In the same way Adam gave birth to his body, Eve, when Eve was taken from his side when he was asleep in the garden. So when Christ is asleep on the cross, the church is born from his side with the blood and water that symbolise the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. If Christ's church is not in existence for 1,500 years, or for whatever number of years, then we can say that Christ failed in his promise. Because we can assert that for a substantial time, the gates of hell had provided. Anyway, that's another argument altogether. Let's now look directly on quotes from scripture that I maintain contradict both Osses and Tulip. Not necessarily both at the same time, but one or the other. Luke 8, 12 to 13. This is Christ speaking. The parable of the sower of the seed. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. They may not believe and be saved. So this is one of the the set here. They heard, but they never believed because the devil got it. They never chance to believe. So they never believed. Contrast with the following. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, so they've heard as well, receive it with joy. So they heard and received it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. They are believers. And in time of temptation, fall away. So Jesus says, they did believe, but they then fell away. So that's my opinion, that's my contention, the first argument against Tulip, because the P in Tulip says that true Christians can never fall away. They persevere. They're predestined to grace, pre and they persevere in grace. They can't fall away. But Christ says that you can have people who believe and hear, hear, believe, and believe with joy and believe for a while, but then fall away. Now, Calvin didn't say there's any time limit in regards to this. I mean, Calvin didn't say that 
You know, you've got to believe for one year to be a true Christian. You've got to believe for six months to be a true Christian. You didn't put any condition, precedent on the amount of time that you that you know you believe for. So, you know, Calvin didn't say, "Oh, you can fall any time in the first six months." But if you survive six months, you're persevered. He never said that. Once you call, you're predestined from eternity. So once you're aware of that predestination, you'll persevere. All right, Luke 15, 11, 32. This is the prodigal son parable. So I'll just paraphrase it. I don't think I'll put the actual text here. Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, in which one of the sons of the father leaves home. We know the story very well. It's twice described by his father as being dead. Okay, that's spiritually dead. We know he's not physically dead. He's alive, naturally speaking, but he's out there wallowing with prostitutes and then the pigs and rolling in the mud and eating straw. He's having a terrible time. So that represents his spiritual death, his, his apostasy. For the, the Jew hearing this, this was an apostasy because he left Israel and he's with the pigs. And that's a double whammy for Jews to leave the physical confines of Israel not just to leave your father's house, that was to leave the house of Yahweh, actually, which was represented by Israel. And then go off with the pigs. Well, we know what they were for the Jews. They were anathema. Anyway, he's described twice as dead and then returns home and is spoken of by the father as being alive again. Alive again. So with this son, he was once alive, apostatized, and then is alive again. Now, the fact is that he was once alive. If, if Calvin was right, he should never have, if he was a true Christian, he should never have, well, he's not actually a Christian in this model, but Christ is giving this model for, you know, for the future Christians. This is a parable for the church, future believers as well, not for the Jews only. If Calvin is right, if this person was a true believer, he would always have persevered in grace. He would never have fallen away. Yet, he, okay, he falls away and he comes back, which is the Catholic position. That's the whole Christian life according to the Catholic Church. It's a constant struggle. God is the first mover. God is the first caller. He puts us in grace. We have to respond. and But it's a continued response, not a one-off response that guarantees us perseverance for life or guarantees us uh, salvation. Not a one-off choice only. It's a continued working with God's prevenient grace. And if we fall, it's our fault, not God's, as it was with the prodigal son. He resisted the grace of the Father. He left, but he came back again. That's the whole Catholic story about life of grace and holiness. It's a constant struggle. Rising and falling and rising again and perhaps falling again and rising again. Etc. John 15, 5-10 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If a man does not abide in me, so he's talking about someone who is in him, but may leave. Now, if true Christians could never leave Christ, then why such a warning? It's the principles. If Calvin is right, the true Christians will always persevere, then why is Christ giving the following warning? If a man does not abide in me, that is, remain in me, 
He is cast forth as a branch and withers. Now, Osa says that you can depart from Christ but still be saved. Christ is warning here, if a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers and he spiritually dies. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. That represents hell. That Christ is warning that the person who is in him, if he doesn't abide, if he doesn't persevere, what's going to happen to him? So he doesn't persevere. So that goes against children. And what if he does fall? Is his salvation unfettered? Is he still going to keep salvation if he abandons Christ? Christ says he will be gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now that represents hell. If you, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's another debate there, about bearing much fruit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... If, it's conditional. He doesn't say, you will keep my commandments. If you keep. There's a condition he's laying here for salvation. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. It's conditional. If Christians, I mean, he's talking to the believers, he's talking to the apostles, who doubts that they were true Christians? Anyone here doubts that the apostles were true followers of Christ, at least after Pentecost? Why this warning? Why this condition if we're guaranteed perseverance in grace and therefore salvation? It makes it, not, it, makes it nonsensical. Christ is issuing statements and words that won't apply to true Christians. He's talking about people who are in him and they better stay in him. If they don't, they're thrown into the fire. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name. This is Christ speaking to the Father. Which thou hast given me. I have guarded them, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus said that he had lost none of those the Father had given to him except for Judas. So of those the Father gave him, Jesus lost Judas. You can be given by the Father to Jesus at one time, therefore, and yet not be given to stay with Jesus. Now, there are going to debates about the situation of Judas as long as you like. The Calvinist position will look at Judas and say, ah, he was predestined to betray Christ. He was robotic, automaton. The Catholic position is that we have free will. Our will is damaged by original sin. It's not destroyed. This is where Luther and Calvin exaggerated massively the consequences of original sin. They said will was destroyed. One of Luther's very earliest works was the bonded will. He was opposed, ironically, by Erasmus, who wrote on the liberty of the will. But they said that original sin destroyed will. We don't have the faculty to make a choice. We do nothing. It is God who chooses. This fits in well with Calvinism. God's will prevails. It's the only one that counts here. And God's will is irresistible. Irresistible grace. We can't resist because we don't have a will. It's bonded. It's enslaved. 
have a position is that our will is wounded by original sin through the wound of malice. What does that mean technically? It's excessive self-love. That's what malice means technically from a Catholic theological point of view. Excessive self-love. The will is the is the spiritual faculty that orders our love towards God above all things and our neighbour as ourselves. They're the two perennial commandments. They're the, that's the law of love that existed from the very beginning of Adam and Eve and will exist to the end of the world. The law, the law of love is to love God above all things and our neighbour as ourselves. But the wound of malice in the will inverted that love, so we love ourselves above all things. Our will is not destroyed, it's inverted. But with the grace of, that comes to us through Christ and the redemption, Christ, the actual grace of the Christ enlighten us and move us. Now, we can't break out of this by ourselves. As some claim we're Pelagians, but we're not. The Catholic Church fought and condemned Pelagians and semi-Pelagianism as well, actually. That's the strict heresy. That we can do things that are meritorious in the eyes of God through our own initiative. None. It is God the first mover, the first author of grace who enlightens us and moves us. And only he can move us to reorder our love so that it's reverted out of us towards God above all things and our neighbours ourselves. So we still have a will. It's not destroyed, but it has to be ordered according to grace. Now, I forgot why I originally started this particular diversion. But anyway, uh, we'll go to Romans 11, 20, 22. Quote, they were broken off because of their unbelief. This is Christ, sorry, St. Paul speaking to the Romans about the Jews. Yeah. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But, that, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. That's a warning there about presumption. Stand in awe. I mean, be thankful for the fact that you have been called. Be thankful that you know Christ. Be thankful that you live in him. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that if, if he did not spare the Jews, if he's cut them off for their infidelity, perhaps he will not spare you. Here's another warning to Roman Christians. If Calvin's right, why this warning True Christians will always persevere. So why is Paul warning them? Perhaps he will not spare you, but aren't they supposed to be persevering in grace and elected to salvation to no choice of their own? That's it. God's willed it. They can't do anything to they can't do anything to undermine their own salvation. But here's Paul saying, for if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps He will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. There's the warning. It's a warning to the Romans. Don't become proud or complacent in the fact that you are in Christ now. Be thankful to God. And be careful. Otherwise, if He's warning them. I'm paraphrasing here. If you want me to read it again, I'll read it again. But I'm paraphrasing right now. He's saying, look, the Jews fell. They were once the chosen people of God. They've rebelled. They've fallen. cut off. You likewise commit a similar fate. I read those words of warning again. But kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So St. Paul's saying, you have a role here. 
you are called to persevere, to work with God's continuous grace. You can't go around saying, look, I'm saved. That's it. I'm, I'm home. And well, you can't go around and say, look, I'm guaranteed persevering. You can't go around saying, look, I don't have any role in it. But God's done it all and he'll do it all and there's nothing for me to do. There is something for you to do. What St. Paul said. St. Paul's saying, you must continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Now, what does cut off mean? If you don't persevere in his kindness, if you don't work with God's grace to persevere in his kindness, this is very Catholic. This is exactly Catholic teaching. We have to work with God's grace to stay in grace. We don't get into grace by ourselves, and we can't stay in grace by ourselves. We can't go around this Catholic saying, listen, I'm home and home. If I die now, I'm going to heaven for sure. I know for certain I'm going to persevere. If I live to 150, I know I'm going to stay in God's grace. We can't say that. St. Paul is saying we have to continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. So if I don't persevere in his kindness, I'm cut off, not saved. That's what cut off means. It doesn't mean I'm going to lose my position as lectal. I'm not going to be subdeacon anymore. Or I can't hand out communion to the sick. You will be cut off as the Jews have been cut off for their infidelity. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. To the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. So why is St. Paul doing all this work? So he can share in the blessings of the gospel. What are they? Ultimately, the greatest blessing is salvation. The vision of God is getting to heaven. So St. Paul's doing this because he's been called to do it, and he knows he's obliged because of his call. But he knows he has to persevere in this calling. He just can't say, look, Jesus appeared to me on the way to Damascus. I can relax now. Those trips around the Aegean were really holiday trips. You know? No, they weren't. He was fulfilling what he felt was his obligation, his calling. Okay? And what is it? I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. In other words, the converse is, if I don't do what I've been called to do, I will not share in its blessings. If you're called by God and you clearly know his calling, and you say no thanks, you're doomed. You're doomed. That's what St. Paul is saying here. I am called, and I continue to do this, 25 years of suffering. He wanted to go back to, to Tarsus and make tents. That's what his job was originally. He's pulled out of that by Barnabas to go on the first missionary journey. And he knows he has to do this work so he can share in the blessings of the gospel. Let's continue with the same quote. Do you know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? And then he uses this analogy to the Christian life. Run in such a way that you may win in it. So the Christian, you have to run. You're in a race too. You have to run to win a prize. This race is better though. There are more, many can win first prize. Heaven is not just reserved for one person. All you, the Corinthians, yeah, Corinthians, you're running in this race. Keep running in this race so you win this prize. What's this prize? It's not a wreath around their heads. It's a Greek Olympic Games at that time. 
It's not a fancy position in the church there in Corinth. You know, it's not a beautiful holiday house there on the isthmus of Corinth because you believe in the gospel of prosperity. It's not that. I don't want to be too cynical. Sorry about that. Um, Run in such a way that you may win it. Salvation. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So those pagan athletes, sorry, running in the nude there in those Olympic games for a pathetic little piece of uh, vine around their heads, they're doing it for a wreath that's dried and dead in a few days. We're running in a race for an imperishable crown. That's heaven. Why the analogy of athletes running in a race? Because we're called to persevere, to struggle. The triple concupiscence that St. John talks about, the concupiscence of the eyes, concupiscence of, of the pride of life, concupiscence of the flesh, concupiscence of the eyes and the pride of life. Concupiscence of the eyes, according to St. Paul, St. John, is the uncontrolled desire for possession. Concupiscence of the flesh is uncontrolled desire for sexual pleasure. And pride of life is the uncontrolled desire to be esteemed and loved. I don't know which is the hardest to resist. Right? It's a struggle. That's a daily struggle. The race that St. Paul's talking about is the struggle that all Christians must engage in in order to win this prize. The question may be, oh, Jesus does it all. What is the role of the Christian? There's no role. You don't have to do anything because Jesus does it all. That sounds nice. It sounds easy. It sounds compact. But Jesus called us to do something. This is St. Paul calling the Christian to do something, to run in the race. It means to do good and avoid evil. We do have a will. It is free. It's wounded with God's grace. It can be reverted towards God and neighbor. God wants, when we talk about personal relationship, it's ironic that people talk about personal relationship with Jesus when they don't believe in free will. They don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, but Jesus does it all. We're not required to do anything. Then where's the relationship? See, we are creatures that are social and we're meant to have a relationship with each other and with God. We can only do that through the, the, the spiritual powers of the intellect and the will. We don't do it with our bodies. We don't do it with our sense appetites, eating, drinking, sexuality. We do it with the will and the intellect. We've got to have a personal relationship with Christ. It's two-way. Love is two-way. We can't love him unless he loves us first and he calls us and he purifies us to enable us to love him in return. But we have to correspond with that grace and do it on a daily basis. I haven't finished this quote yet. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air, but I punish my body and enslave it, so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. Now, we might have spent so long in this quote, but I've heard the conversions of what it means by St. Paul, when he says, so I'm not disqualified. They say he means that he's not disqualified from his office as an apostle. I'll just put you in the whole context of it. It's a race where he's asking everyone, the Corinthians, and then himself, to run in a race that wins an imperishable crown. He's talking about athletes. What do athletes do? They punish themselves. They discipline themselves. They put themselves on strict diets, strict training regimes. Even in the Olympic Games of Greece at that time, that's why he's using this analogy. It's Greece. The Olympic Games, everyone knows what he's talking about. The athletes exercise self-control in all things. Then St. Paul says, I punish my body and enslave it. He's the athlete, referring to himself. 
controlling his passions and desires, right? his threefold concupiscence that he combats among, within himself. So that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. He doesn't want to be disqualified from the race to heaven. So Paul is not saying, guess what he's not doing here? He's not saying, listen, I'm once saved, always saved. He's not saying, look, I'm saved, I'm going to persevere. He's saying, I'm running the race like you guys, and I'm combating my appetites, my desires, my lusts, my concupiscence, so that I'm not disqualified. And that the inverse of that is, if I don't run this race, if I don't discipline myself, I will be disqualified. See, so the great St. Paul himself, if St. Paul's saying, I can lose it, I can fail to persevere, then that applies to us even more so. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2 Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. It's all there, really. I hope you see it. I hope not. I hope. I hope you don't think I'm distorting these scriptures. I hope you see that there is, there, they are as clear to you as they appear to me. I'll read that again. Now I would remind you, this is the same letter to the Corinthians that I read. I read 1 Corinthians 9, now I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15. So about 20 minutes later, a good Corinthian reading this letter would have come to this paragraph. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, in which you in turn received, in which also you stand. So they're Christians. They're Christians who believe because they've received and they stand in this gospel that Paul gave them. So if they're Christians who believe, they should be guaranteed perseverance. No threat of ever falling from grace. But St. Paul says, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, and if you don't, unless you have come to believe in vain. Again, if there was a true doctrine of perseverance of the saints in the early church, in the time of St. Paul, then why isn't it in this epistle? Why are, why are these verses warning verses? Why do we have verses warning the Christians to not to fall if they couldn't fall in the first place? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's like me saying to Arleth, don't drink the grog at the back tonight. There's no grog. We all know it. You're never going to drink grog. Don't drink grog. If I keep repeating to don't drink the grog, she thinks I'm crazy. Superfluous warnings. It's not theology on tap here. There's no grog at the back. <laughs> Galatians 5, 1 to 4. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's another warning to the Galatians. Stand firm and do not again submit to the yoke of slavery. Now, what he's really saying here in context is that we need to do a course on why St. Paul's writing these letters because of the Judaizers who were travelling in the same parts of St. Paul who were going against the Council of Jerusalem held in 4950 AD which said that pagan converts to Christ didn't need to be circumcised. Well, the Judaizers didn't accept that. So while St. Paul and Silas are out there preaching the decision of the Council of Jerusalem, 
There are other Judaizing preachers who are going out there competing with Paul and Silas and leading these pagan Christians or Gentile Christians now. Back to circumcision. And St. Paul's outrage in this letter to the Galatians because the Galatians fell for one of these Judaizers and reverted to insisting on circumcision to be saved as a necessary condition for salvation. Let's start again here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That is, freedom from circumcision. Christ has set us free from circumcision. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do not go back to the ways of the Jews and be circumcised. Listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Hold on. They're Christian. They've been baptized. They've come to believe in Jesus. And if they be circumcised afterwards, Paul's saying, you lose Christ. Christ has no benefit to you. What does that mean? You're not going to be saved. That's what that's what pregnant. Well, that's what's pregnant in that comment. Christ will be of no benefit to you. You will not. You will forfeit your salvation. It's an apostasy. He's saying. Once again, I testify to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the entire law. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. By the way, I didn't mention, this is not a Catholic Bible I'm using. This is a revised standard version, which is ecumenical. Catholics and Protestants use it. And this is not some doctored Roman, Popish, deliberate backroom invention by Jesuits from Spain in the dark after the Council of Trent during the Inquisition. No, it's not. This is a 1966 ecumenical version of Scripture. Okay? Look at the starkness. Perseverance is the same. If you're a true Christian, you'll always persevere in grace. You can never be lost. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. St. Paul is saying to the Galatians, if you take this option of circumcision, you will lose grace, you will lose Christ, you will lose salvation. You've fallen away from grace means Christ will be of no benefit to you. I don't know how Osus can fit in that. If you're a good Christian, you're a Galatian good Christian, you've got Osus supporting you, the matter. You be circumcised, Paul's saying, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You've fallen away from grace. Okay, you have, but you'll still be saved. It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't make sense. Why the stark warning? Why is Paul saying, he's screaming at them, exclamation marks everywhere. Don't be circumcised. If you do, Christ is of no benefit to you. You've fallen away from grace, in brackets, but you still go to heaven. It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. It, it makes a mockery of St. Paul's warning in the first place. Why is he so stark? Unless we're dealing with the highest state, salvation. Colossians 1, 21-23. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. There's another warning. It's the same thing. 
repeated again and again and again. You were once pagans, estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You were really bad pagans, leaving, leading a horrible life. He's now reconciled in his fleshly body through death to present you holy and blameless. So he's, he's talking to people who are Christians. You were once pagan and immoral. Now you are holy and blameless. So you are a true Christian. Provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith. Again, why that warning if they could never lose their grace in the first place? 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3. I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to Christ to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. By a sincere, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So there's the warning again. He's afraid. But Calvin is like, no need to be afraid. What's your problem? And even if they are deceived by the cunning serpent as Eve was, there'll be no consequences for them. They'll still go there. Why the warning? Why worry about it? It just doesn't make sense to me. Paul is worried because he wants his children that he's brought to Christ to lead the holy life. Jesus said, Matthew 19, 17, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. So is that a gospel of works? No, it's not. It's a gospel of Christ. Obeying the commandments by themselves will not get you saved. But when you come to Christ, he commands you to keep the commandments. Why? Because that's not a law written on stone. That's a law written on our hearts. That's a law that governs our nature. A natural moral law. What is the commandments? The two tablets. Two tablets to reflect the two simple laws. Love God above all things and your neighbour as yourself. That law is never abrogated. That law is existed before Moses, before the Ten Commandments, before Abraham, before Noah. It existed the moment Adam and Eve were created. Because the natural law, the natural moral law that governs us was promulgated as law when God created us. And we have a human nature which doesn't change. That law that governs our human nature will never change. Christ is demanding that we fulfill that law when we come to him for the rest of our lives. We can't do it by ourselves. Only he gives us the grace that we receive through prayer, the sacraments, and doing good works in faith. He gives us the grace to fulfill that law he commands in Matthew 19, 17. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. How many times did the young man, we have the gospel, I think this is Mark 10. Lord, what must I do to be saved? Just believe once and don't worry about it. That's not what Jesus said. Just believe and I'll guarantee you persevere for life. That's not what he said. Lord, what must I do to be saved is the question of the rich young man. Or the young man in Mark 10. The answer is, keep the commandments. That's what St Paul's asking in these letters to his Christians, to his people, that he's brought to Christ. Keep the commandments. So the Corinthians stop eating idol food and idol temples. Keep the first commandment. Stop fornicating. 
Stop ripping off your neighbour. Stop committing incest. Keep the commandments, because Christ commands it. And if you don't keep the commandments, he'll hold you to account. Jesus never said to the young man, just believe in me once, just have faith and that's be fine. Without faith, you can't be saved. No good works will save you. But as James says, and there's a complex argument, but as James says in his epistle, faith without works is dead, works without faith is dead. Works done in faith is what St Paul said to the Galatians. Faith working itself out in love. Faith working itself out in loving God above all things and neighbours ourselves. That's what really Paul is crying out for here in all these epistles. It's the same gospel. It connects with Jesus. We talk about the justification debate. Sydney Uni among the Anglicans there. It's always Paul, Paul, Paul. They never quote James, they never quote Jesus. The gospel is the same, whether it's Jesus, Paul or James. It's the gospel I just outlined to you now. If you wish to enter the life, keep the commandments. Believe in me, and when you keep the commandments in grace, in me, I will graciously reward you for that. If you wish to enter the life, keep the commandments. If you don't wish to keep the commandments, you won't enter the life. That's what it means. 1 Timothy 1, 19-20 By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Some people have been ruined. They were in the faith in the shipwreck now. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan so that they may learn to not to blaspheme. There's two examples. He names two people that were in the faith. Certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the faith. He doesn't say, oh, they were never true Christians in the first place. He doesn't even say they were hopeless Christians in the first place. You can't impute that into the text. Just look at the text. Certain persons have suffered shipwreck in the, in the faith. He names the two, they've been turned over to Satan, so that they may, not, may learn not to blaspheme. They've been given some type of ecclesiastical church punishment, some form of excommunication. That's what it means to be given over to Satan. They've been banished for some time to learn a lesson. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. What does it mean some will announce the faith? Well, that can be open to interpretation in all honesty. It could mean St Paul is talking about the apostasy of the nations in the last days. If you don't believe it, look at around you today. It could, it could be referring it in a corporal sense. Corporate sense, sorry. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will renounce the faith. That some could mean peoples, nations. It could refer to individuals. So that quote's a bit equivocal. You can argue the point there. 1 Timothy 5 8. Who, and whoever does not provide for relatives, that is, love, love, loves neighbour as themselves, and especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you're Christian and you're shirking on your social and moral, or moral obligations towards your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. The faith demands that you show such charity, charity and love to your family members. And you're worse than an unbeliever. St. Paul says you're worse than an unbeliever. But no problem. You don't be saved anyone. Doesn't make sense. How can you be Worse than an unbeliever and still said to be persevering. It just doesn't make sense. 
if you're persevering, and always will persevere, and all true Christians will always persevere according to Calvin, then how can you ever be an unbeliever? Or worse than an unbeliever? 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. He's saying it there. He knows of Christians who have left because they wanted to be rich in the world. He doesn't say, oh, they'll never one of us. He doesn't say that they were bad in the first place. He's actually saying they became bad. They were once one of us, and then they became bad. They didn't work continuously with Christ's grace. Stay faithful. They let their heart turn away from love of God above all things to love of money above all things. And then they went left. Whose fault is it? Well, Calvin said, I'm never really one of us in the first place. But really, it's their fault. Calvin would blame God. Because Calvin would say, God predestined them to be the reprobate. They didn't have free will, so there's no choice of their own. It's God's doing. And isn't it wonderful? Thank God he sent them to hell. Thank God he... Uh, predestined them to love money above all things and go to hell. What a loving father to predestine people to hell through no choice of their own. So I'll, I'll use that as the model of my fatherhood with my four children. I'm your dad. You two are going, I'm going to do everything good for you and you two, I'm going to predestine to do everything bad to you and no matter what you do, you have no choice in it. I am going to raise you up and I'm going to knock you down. What type of father would I be? to do that to my children, to divide my family like that. I'll be frank here, this is not necessarily the most scholarly way of presenting it, so I apologise, but that's Calvin's God. I'll divide humanity in half. The, the bold are the reprobate. The minority are the elect. I'll predestine all of them, either to salvation or damnation, through no choice of their own. They can't choose. They don't have free will. Bonded will, original sin, remember, irresistible grace. They can't resist my grace. I'm deciding it all for all of them. And my will provides. I created these children for no reason except to damn them, to no fault of their own. No, Catholicism says people go to hell. But people go to hell through their own fault. They resisted the grace that God gives to all. 1 Timothy 2 4, God wills all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wills all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So why aren't all saved? Because there are people who resist his will. Because God wants a relationship based, a loving relationship that's reciprocal in love. And you can't love unless you have free will. You're not ordered to love like a robot. You must love free. So we are free, but we choose to love ourselves more than God. So we are damned for doing that. And it's our fault, not God's. Hebrews 2.1 Therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Another warning. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Another warning. Hebrews 6.4-6 For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened. That's a phrase in Greek, photismos. In the early church, they used that word to describe the consequence of baptism, the effect of baptism. You were, if you read in early church writings, they were illumined, that is, photismos in Greek, they were baptized. Okay? 
It is, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And you can't be more Christian than that. So St. Paul's talking about, or maybe St. Barnabas, we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews, but it's Pauline in spirit, at least. And then have fallen away, since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding him up to contempt. I mean, it's so clear there in Hebrews. He's talking about people who have been fully immersed in the Christian life and then have fallen away. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, I never really want it. They're never true Christians in the first place. Sham conversion. And nor does he imply that oh, they're falling in ways of no consequence to them. Hebrews 10, 23 to 27. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, that is the day of judgment. For if we willfully persist in sin, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I mean, this is stark. This is St. Paul, presumed St. Paul, Hebrews again. Let's look at it. He's talking to people who have a believe in Christ. They've Okay? For if you willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth. So after you've come to belief in Christ, whether it's Osis or Chul, if you're willfully sinning again after that, there are consequences. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. In other words, see, that's a way of saying you've rejected Christ. Christ isn't going to be re-crucified for you. You've rejected him and what he's done for you. But if what, what lies in store for you for those who willfully sin after coming to the truth, a fearful prospect of judgment, a fearful prospect of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. The adversary that is the enemies of God. That is very clear. You willfully sin after coming to the knowledge of the truth. You are, you will be damned. So you can come to the knowledge of the truth and sin afterwards. So Calvin's got a problem here. You, you can come to the knowledge of the truth in sin afterwards, and there will be consequences. A fearful prospect of judgment. We don't want this to happen. As, as I said at the beginning of this talk, my goodness, I wish there was a once saved or always saved. Be easy for me. Every time I lose it here or there, I feel ashamed of myself. And I think, oh, you know, now, I have my own problems, my own issues. So I really wish there was a one-stop shop. One saved, always saved. That's it. But where would be the motivation to do good for the rest of my life? To struggle to be better? I know I wouldn't have the motivation. Anyway, that's me personally. Let's just stick to scripture here. There are consequences. For if we willfully, he's talking to Christians who are in the truth. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fire, fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 10.35 The divinely inspired author, author tells us, Do not therefore abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. So there's an implicit warning there. Do not abandon that confidence of yours. Don't abandon the faith, in other words. 
So, in other words, Paul believed that you could abandon it. 2 Peter 1, 5, 11. Peter tells us to make every effort, effort to supplement... Okay, I'm paraphrasing here. What does it say? Okay, this is his quote. Peter says the following. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, dot, dot, dot. So if you do this, you will never fall. What does that mean? If you don't do it, you risk falling. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Hold on there. This almost is like the gospel of works. Make, your every, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So we're asked to make an effort to supplement faith. We're asked by Peter, you've got to do something as well. Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. You will be richly provided for. You'll be richly provided for. So there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of your Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. But proponents of OSIS claim that if we make an effort to do anything at all, we embrace a false gospel of works and will be denied an entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. 2 Peter 2.20-22 If after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. So he's talking hypothetically here, and it's very similar to the quote from Hebrews we looked at earlier. If after having escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, after knowing it, was supposed to persevere. No. After knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them, it has happened to them according to the true proverb. The dog turns back to his vomit. And the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. So there's a warning. You can come to Christ and be washed. You can fall again. And you can be worse than your original state. So the perseverance of the saints says you'll persevere. You'll never sin seriously again. But that's not the warning here. 2 Peter 3, 16, 17. Peter says that, quote, the ignorant and unstable twist the the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away from the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. Now I'm conscious of the time, and also I'll just move a little bit more quickly and less histrionics. Revelation 22:19. Quote: If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. So, you can have a share in the tree of life in God's holy city, and yet have that share taken away from you. Revelation 3.11 Jesus tells his readers, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. There's an implicit warning there too. Hold fast what you have. There's nothing there saying you're guaranteed of anything. The warning is hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. Seize your crown. Okay. Some of the quotes here. Now, I'm coming up to the section here, um, which deal with verses that are used to support either osis or tulip. I think we need to cover some of them at least. Okay. And this is, gets pretty 
I, I think I spent a little bit too long on the other verses because this is take this is rather complex and it's getting late and you might be a little bit drowsy. And some of this argument here uh, involves the use of Greek, etc. So I hope I don't lose you. Now here's the first quote: John six thirty seven. Jesus says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out." So Jesus will never cast those out those who come to him. So those who come to him will never be lost. So this is true. Those who come to him will never be cast out. True. We don't doubt that for a moment. If you come to Jesus, he won't cast you out. No, there's no way Jesus will knock back anybody. But that doesn't mean you can't leave him. This is the point. All these warnings we've just looked at about St. Paul saying, ah, be careful, Jesus is going to throw you back. He doesn't say that. The whole point of St. Paul's warnings, or St. Peter, is warning us not to cast him out, not to turn our back on him. In fact, you can reject him. In order to understand this, we need to know a little bit about the Greek of this passage. Throughout this passage, an important truth is presented that again might be missed by many English translations. When Jesus describes the one who comes to him and who believes in him, he uses the present tense to describe this coming, believing, hearing or seeing. The present tense refers to a continuous ongoing action. In other words, when we come to Jesus, it's not referring to a one-off come to Jesus and that's it. Jesus doesn't cast us out. If we come to him once and then keep coming to him, responding to his grace, now, I'm sorry this is a little bit tedious. The Greek contrasts this kind of action against the aorist sense, which is a point action, a single action in time that is not ongoing. So an action in the past that's one often closed. The wonderful promises that are provided by Christ are not for those who do not truly and continuously believe. The faith that saves is a living faith, a faith that always looks to Christ as Lord and Saviour. John 6, 38, 39. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, you referred to that verse before, earlier on in this talk. That can be interpreted that everyone who is given to Jesus by the Father will not be lost. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. So anyone who's truly in the hands of Christ will not be lost. True, it is the Father's will that he lose none of those given to him. It is also the Father's will that nobody commit murder or adultery. But that doesn't mean that people don't commit murder or adultery. They do. You have to distinguish between which divine will you are talking about, the will by which he desires what will happen, and the will by which he decrees what will happen. In this passage, Jesus is talking about the former, that is, the desire. And we know that because some, of, some who have been given to him are lost. In John 17, 9 to 12, Jesus says, I am praying for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. While I was with them, I have guarded them, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, of those the Father gave to Jesus... Jesus lost Judas in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. In one sense, God wants all who are given to Jesus to persevere. But in another sense, God also allows some of them, like Judas, not to persevere. 
Whose fault? Judas's fault. John 6.40 Next Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. True, but the key verbs in this verse are present tense. So what actually it says is, to paraphrase, For this continues to be the will of my Father, that everyone who continues to see the Son and who continues to believe in him should continue to have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 27, 28. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So everyone who comes to Jesus can never be taken out of his hand. I would like to quote the great Baptist theologian Dale Moody on this verse. In his quote, Systematic Theology, The Word of Truth, he says the following. John 10.28 is frequently used as a security blanket by those who ignore many of the New Testament warnings about going back or falling away. But a literal translation of John 10.27.28 hardly needs explanation. To quote, My sheep keep on hearing my voice. This is how Moody translates it. My sheep keep hearing, keep on hearing my voice, and I keep on knowing them, and they keep on following me, and I keep on giving them eternal life, so they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So no one will be snatched out so long as those people are persevering. That's how Moody himself translates it. The verbs are present linear, indicating continuous action by the sheep and by the shepherd, not the punctilia fallacy of the past tense. One last one, then I'll conclude. 1 John 2.19 Quote, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And this is an apparently strong verse in favour of children. If they were really one of us, they would never have left us. So because they left, they are never really one of us. That's the implication. There are at least a number of reasons why this passage is difficult. First, maybe the people under discussion were false Christians who had never been justified. So what? False Christians will leave. That doesn't prove all who leave are false Christians. Second, this is referring to Antichrist, if you look at the context. People who deny the incarnation of Jesus. It does not teach us any law about people who do believe in the incarnation. Third, Sure, they are not of us when they went out from us, but that doesn't mean they were never of us. As the great Baptist theologian Dale Moody points out, this verse, quote, is often read as if it says the Antichrist went out from us because they were never of us. But the Greek would also allow for interpretation and translation that they went out from us because they were no longer of us. In fact, that is the translation of A.T. Robertson, the Baptist Greek scholar and author of the famous multi-volume word pictures in the New Testament, gives to the passage. I'm probably losing you a bit here because I'm, I'm, it's a bit long and tedious, but I apologise for that. Fourth, if you read the whole discussion of the Antichrist in 1 John 2, 18 to 29, it is very clear Christians can fall away. For John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. 
I write this to you about those who would deceive you, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So they're the words here that are important. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, so that's conditional, he's warning them, we must abide in Jesus, so that we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now to conclude, remember my friend Charlie, my ex-student Charlie on the phone said to me the following, you know what I noticed from this habit? I'm going to heaven and you're not. Okay? The three judgments there he made. One, that if he died at that moment, he knows for certain he's going to go to heaven. He knows for certain also that he was going to persevere for the rest of his life. Because he said to me on another occasion, I know I'm never going to commit a serious sin again. And the third certainty was that I'm going to hell for sure. Okay? It's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4 about himself. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. Charlie said, one thing I know for sure, I'm going to heaven. He's judging himself. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself. That's a good Catholic thing. It's called examination of conscience. When he scans his own conscience, he's not aware of anything that he's done to offend God or Jesus. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Why does Paul say this? Because he knows that his judgment of himself is not the judgment that's going to get him into heaven. He knows he has to face someone else who will judge him. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. What I know for sure, Mr. Haddad, is that I'm going to heaven and that you're not. He's judging himself and me before the time. He's saying, I know I'm going to heaven for sure. St. Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. That's called humility. He knows he's walking the path. He has a virtue of hope. He's not in despair going, oh no, oh, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. I can't cope with this. This is psychologically distressing. He's not like that. He's walking and living in hope. St. Paul says it's faith, hope and love. What's hope? Expectation of the future, of a reward. He's living in hope. This is the Catholic virtue or asked for, or theological virtue Catholics are asked to walk in. Not despair or nervousness or, you know, some neurosis. Hope. We're walking in hope. That's different than certainty. St. Paul is living in hope. But the Council of Trent said that an individual can be given a specific revelation by God that they will be uh, saved and go to heaven. That can happen, but that doesn't generally happen. St. Paul can say that, and you know, I've run the race, I've fought the fight, you know, I've fought the fight, run the race, kept the faith, all that awaits me now is that crown of glory which the Lord will give to me for those who love his coming. That could be either hope or certainty, maybe both. St. Paul could have received an individual private revelation that he's going to go to heaven for sure. But that's not the general rule. St. Paul here is exhibiting the general rule. It is not the Lord, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive commendation from God. And that's how we're supposed to live now. 
in hope, waiting, examining our consciences, if we're aware of anything to seek reconciliation to, with God, walking in that, walking in faith, walking in hope, hoping for that eternal reward that will come. But we don't pronounce that for ourselves. It's for Jesus to pronounce that when we come before him one on one. So my friend Charlie, I think, overstepped the mark. If I go to hell, it's not because of Charlie that appoints me in that direction. It's Jesus points me in that direction. How should we live as Christians? I'm, I'm saying we, I'm discounting Osis. I wish it was true, but I don't believe it is true. I'm discounting Tulip, because I don't believe it's true either. I believe that the weight of these scripture quotes all the warnings are given for a reason. And if one or the other of these is true, and they can't both be true, as I said, but if one or the other is true, then all these warnings are superfluous. How should we live? Now, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, absolutely, because without faith you can't be saved. That's the Council of Trent. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. In our hope. It stands in the middle, doesn't it? It's not despair. It's not assurance. It's hope. We, we believe in God. We believe in Christ. We have faith in him. Through Christ we have access to the grace that enables us to stand in this hope we walk in. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. For me, that sums it up. That's the life, that's the journey of the Christian. Not a one-stop shop, I believe in Jesus sincerely, that's it, I'm saved, no matter what happens, I'm going to heaven. Not a, I believe in Jesus, I'm saved, I'm guaranteed to persevere. No, it's I believe in Jesus, Jesus is my saviour, Jesus is my redeemer, Jesus has called me to this, I'll walk in him, I'll walk with him, I must work out my salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul says, corresponding to his grace, day by day, walking on that narrow road, uh, to get through that narrow gate to see that broad vision one day. Thank you. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.